Section forty four of the Mysteries of London, Volume One, Part Two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Dave Wills. The Stockbroker, Part Two. I think Mrs. Chichester spoke like a generous, sensible, and noble-hearted woman, observed Tomlinson, who was nevertheless at a loss to conceive how all these details could be connected with the service which Mr. Chichester required at his hands. <coughs> exclaimed that gentleman, who did not seem to relish the remark particularly well. However, all that fine feeling was mere outward show with my wife, he continued, for she was inexorable in her refusal to sell out or mortgage any of her funded property for my use. I told her that I had debts. Give a list to my solicitor, she said, and he shall compromise with your creditors. I assured her that I could make a better bargain with them myself. She would not believe me. I then declared point-blank that I did not mean to remain tied to her apron-strings, that she must at least settle half the property upon me, that I desired to keep a horse and cab, and introduce my friends to my wife, and that I was resolved that we should live as people of property ought to live. It was then that she showed her inveterate obstinacy, and manifested the worst shades of an infamous temper. She agreed to allow me one hundred a year for my clothes and pocket-money, but would not give me any control over her property. As for horses, cabs, and West End friends, she ridiculed the idea. I prayed, threatened, and reasoned by turns. She was as immovable as Mount Atlas. Several days were passed in perpetual arguments upon the subject, but the more I prayed and threatened and reasoned, the more obstinate she grew. One morning we had a desperate quarrel. I swore that I would be revenged, that I would extort from her by violence or other means what she refused to yield to argument. Nothing, however, could move her. She said that she would not ruin herself to gratify my extravagances. This was nearly a month ago. I bounced out of the house and hurried up to the west end of the town as fast as I could go to see and consult my friend Sir Rupert Harborough. But as I was on my way thither, for I actually had not even money in my pocket to pay a cab, I accidentally met Greenwood. He saw that I was annoyed and vexed, and inquired the reason. I told him all. He reflected for some moments, and then said, do not consult Harborough in this matter. He cannot assist you. There is only one course to adopt with such a woman as this. You must put her under restraint. I told him that nothing would please me better, but that I should have all her friends upon me if I threw her into a lunatic asylum, and that I was, moreover, without the means to take a single step. Greenwood and I went into a tavern and discussed the business over a bottle of wine. He then laid down a certain plan, made certain stipulations respecting remuneration for himself, and offered to back me in carrying the matter to the extreme. Of course I assented to all he proposed. The whole affair was managed in such a manner as— "'As none but Greenwood can manage it,' observed Tomlinson. "'Exactly,' returned Chichester. "'Indeed, he is a thorough man of business.' He procured two surgeons to call at separate times at the house of Cambridge Heath, ostensibly to see me. I took care to be at home. 
they also saw my wife and the result was that they granted the certificates i required certificates of an unsound state of mind inquired tomlinson certificates of an unsound state of mind repeated chichester affirmatively greenwood managed it all keeping himself however entirely in the background he found the surgeons provided me with money to fee them and then recommended to me a keeper of a lunatic asylum who is not over particular these proceedings occupied two or three days during which i was on my very best behaviour with my wife but if ever i hinted to her the propriety of acceding to my wishes in respect to the disposal of her property she cut me short by the assurance that her decision was irrevocable i really wished to avoid extreme measures but with such a disobedient self-willed obstinate woman leniency was an impossibility accordingly i one evening allured her during a walk into the immediate vicinity of the lunatic asylum the streets were lonely and deserted it was already dark the keeper of the madhouse had been prepared for the execution of the project that evening and he was at his post as we slowly passed by his house he sprang forward from some recess or dark nook and fixed a plaster over my wife's mouth thus not a cry could escape her lips at the same moment we seized her and conveyed her into the asylum that was three weeks ago inquired tomlinson chichester nodded in assent and has she not come to her senses yet she has at length was the answer i received a letter yesterday from the keeper of the asylum stating that her spirit is broken and that she is now ready to obey her husband in all things the keeper wrote to me a few days ago to state that his mode of cure was producing a favourable result, and yesterday he intimated to me by another letter that the mode alluded to had proved completely successful. Uh, what course do you now intend to pursue? demanded Tomlinson, who began to suspect the manner in which his services were to be made available. I immediately communicated the important content of the second letter to Greenwood, continued Chichester, and he recommended me to apply to you to aid me in completing the business. And my wife now sees her folly, and is willing to devote one half of her property, namely eight thousand pounds, to the use and purposes of her lawful husband, and I am generous enough to be satisfied with that sum, instead of insisting upon having the whole i understand you said tomlinson you require a stockbroker to effect the transfer of eight thousand pounds from the name of your wife into your own name and to sell out the amount when so transferred added chichester it will be necessary for me to obtain the signature of your wife to a certain paper observed tomlinson greenwood has told me all this in one word will you accompany me to the asylum where my wife is confined and obtain her signature if she be willing to give it i am willing to receive it as a matter of business answered tomlinson but are you sure in a word what guarantee have you that she will not denounce the whole proceeding to the offices of justice rally her friends around her appeal to the law and punish every one concerned in the business listen the document which she agrees to sign is a general power on my behalf over eight thousand pounds in the bank of england this power will be dated two months back a month after our marriage 
we must be supposed to have called at your office on a particular day at that period on which occasion she signed the power in your presence it being a general power of transfer would it not seem extraordinary that i did not use it until now that is two months after it was given this night must she sign the deed to-morrow you must transfer and sell out the money then to-morrow night she shall be conveyed back to the house at cambridge heath the two servants whom we keep are bribed to my interest they are ready in case of need to prove the existence of those symptoms of insanity which justify the certificates of the surgeons and the restraints under which my wife has been placed <laughs> how then can she do us an injury if she proclaim her wrongs as she may call them you can prove that the power of transfer could not have been extorted from her in a madhouse as it was signed two months ago in your office then if she were to speak of the mode of treatment adopted by the keeper of that madhouse to curb her haughty spirit the accusation would be indignantly denied and her statements would be set down to a disordered imagination and would justify further restraint be you well assured that you will never say or do anything that may endanger her liberty again no the fact is simply this we divide the property and separate for ever she will be glad to get rid of a husband like me i shall not be sorry to dissolve as far as we can dissolve it a connection with a woman of her mean griping and avaricious disposition thus has greenwood's scheme throughout said tomlinson no other man living could plot such admirable combinations to effect a certain object without danger to any one do you consent to act in this matter on consideration of retaining for yourself five hundred pounds of the money which you will have to transfer and sell out to-morrow i do consent replied tomlinson after a few moments reflection during which he muttered to himself, "'Make money, honestly, if you can, but at all events, make money.' "'Tonight at ten o'clock, will you come to me at my house in Cambridge Heath?' inquired Chichester. "'I will,' was the answer. "'But let me ask you one question. What excuse have you made to your wife's friends for this absence of three weeks?' in the first place said chichester her only relations consist of a sister and this sister's husband at stratford le beau and they are so immersed in the cares of business that they have not called once at cambridge heath ever since our marriage secondly my wife always lived in a very retired manner and has very few acquaintances or friends besides my father's family it was therefore easy to satisfy the one or two persons who did call with the excuse that mrs chichester had gone on a short visit to some relatives in the country and you feel convinced that your precautions are so wisely taken that she will never open her lips relative to the past said tomlinson i am confident that she will not breathe a word that may lead her to return to the place where she now is answered chichester with a significant look and emphatic solemnity of tone then i will not hesitate to serve you in this business said tomlinson to-night at ten o'clock to-night at ten o'clock repeated chichester and with these words he departed when he was gone tomlinson paced his office in an agitated manner the die is cast i am now about to plunge into crime he said and yet how could i avoid 
How could I long procrastinate the step? These mean tricks, these dishonourable dealings, these deceptive schemes in which we brokers are compelled to clear a path, only serving to prepare the way for more daring and more criminal pursuits. Five hundred pounds at one stroke? That is a little fortune to a man struggling against the world like me. Four hundred will I pay to Greenwood, the other hundred will swell my little account at the banker's. For who can hope to do any extent of business in this city without a good name at his banker's? Tomlinson ceased and sat down, calm and collected. Alas, how easy is it to reason oneself into a belief of the existence of a necessity for pursuits of dishonesty or crime. The clerk entered the private office and said, Sir, there is a person who refuses to give his name waiting to speak to you. Let him come in, replied Tomlinson. The clerk ushered in a man of cadaverous countenance, bushy brows and large whiskers, and who was dressed in a suit of black. Your business, sir, said the stockbroker, who did not much like the appearance of this visitor. Your name's Tomlinson, remarked the man, coolly taking a chair. Yes, what would you do with me? James Tomlinson, continued the man, referring to a scrap of paper which he took from his waistcoat pocket. Late banker in Lombard Street? The same, said Tomlinson impatiently. Then I took it to her right. Although he did speak in such a confused manner, observed the man, muttering rather to himself than to Mr. Tomlinson. What do you mean? demanded the stockbroker. I mean that there's a person who wants to see you, answered the stranger. I don't know that I'm exactly right in saying wants, because he is in such a state that he can neither want nor care about anything. At the same time, I think it would be as well if you was to see him. Who is this person? cried Tomlinson. A man that seems to know you well enough, if I can understand his ravings. Ravings? repeated the stockbroker, already influenced by a slight misgiving. Ravings, indeed. Ain't enough to make him rave. To be laid out as dead for four days, then put in a coffin, buried, and be had up again within ten or a dozen hours. If that wouldn't make a man rave, what the devil would? Have the goodness to explain yourself. Every word you utter is an enigma to me. But it wasn't an enigma to my poor friend when the stiffen suddenly put a cold hand upon his. However, in two words, do you know a person called Michael Martin? Michael Martin, cried the stockbroker. Speak, what has become of him? Um, he has been ill. Ill, poor old man, and I not to know it. Worse than that, he died. Died? Where? When? Died, and was buried. Trifle not with me. When did he die? Where is he buried? He died, was buried, and came to life again, said the stranger, with the most provoking coolness. Sir, exclaimed Tomlinson, advancing towards his visitor, and speaking in a firm and emphatic manner. If you have called to tell me anything concerning Michael Martin, speak without mystification. Well, sir, returned the stranger, the plain truth is this. 
an old man without a name took up his abode in a by street in Globetown some months ago. He was taken ill and to all appearances died. He was buried. A surgeon fancied him as a subject and hired me and a friend of mine to have him up again. We resurrectionized him and took him in a cart last night to the surgeon's house. He was conveyed into the dissecting room and stretched on the table. The doctor and I went into the surgery to settle the expenses, and in the meantime my friend was left alone with the stiffen. It seems that a neighbour, suspecting that the surgeon now and then got a subject for his experiments, saw the cart stop at the door and immediately understood what was going on. He went into the garden, which joins the yard where the dissecting house stands, and seeing a light in the window of the dissecting house, he felt sure that his suspicions were well founded, although he could not see into the place because there was a dark blind drawn down over the window. However, the neighbour was resolved to clear up his doubts. So he took up a brick bat and threw it as hard as he could against the window. The glass was broken and the light extinguished. My friend, who was left alone with the stiffen, was somewhat startled at this occurrence. But how much more was he alarmed when he suddenly felt the body stretch out his hand and catch hold of one of his? Then Michael Martin is not dead? ejaculated Tomlinson, in a tone which expressed alike the tenderness of deep emotion and also the bitterness of disappointment, for, perhaps all circumstances considered, the ex-banker would rather have heard a confirmation of the death than an account of the resuscitation of his late clerk. No, the old man is not dead. The doctor and myself were in the surgery when we heard the smash of the window and the cry of the buff uh, of my friend, I mean. Of your brother resurrectionist, I suppose, continued Tomlinson, in a tone of ineffable disgust. Well, go on. We went into the dissecting room with a lamp, and there we found the light put out and my comrade insensible on the floor. But what was more extraordinary still, we saw the corpse gasping for breath. "'He's not dead!' cried the surgeon, and in a moment a lancet was stuck into his arm. The blood would not flow at first, but the surgeon chafed his temples and hands by turns, and in a few moments the blood trickled out pretty freely. Meantime I had recovered my companion and explained to him the nature of the phenomenon that had taken place. When he heard the real truth, he was no longer alarmed, because he knew very well that people are often buried in a trance. In fact, one night, about eighteen months ago, he and I went to the old St. Pancras churchyard to get up a stiffen, and when we opened the coffin, we found that the body had turned completely round on its face. It was, however, stone dead when we got it up and never shall I forget what a countenance it had. But of that, no matter. Have the goodness to keep to your present narrative, said Tomlinson, scarcely able to conceal his disgust at the presence of a resurrectionist, an avowed body-snatcher. Well, continued the man with the cadaverous countenance, in a very few minutes uh, we completely recovered the old gentleman. 
I obeyed all the directions of the surgeon and ran backwards and forwards to the pharmacy for God only knows what salts and what ammonia. At last the subject gave a terrible groan, opened his eyes and exclaimed, Where am I? The surgeon assured him that he was in safety, that he had been very ill, that he was now much better, and so on. Meantime, by the surgeon's orders, I had called up his housekeeper, for he is a bachelor, and she had got a bed prepared and warmed, and some hot water ready, and everything comfortable. Well, we carried the old gentleman up to bed. The doctor gave him a little warm brandy and water, and in another half hour he was able to speak a few words in a comprehensible manner. But his brain seemed confused, and all we could learn was that his name was Michael Martin, and that he raved after a gentleman whom he called James Tomlinson the Banker. Ah, he said that, did he? cried Tomlinson, rising and pacing the room with agitated steps. He did, was the reply. And then we began to think that we had heard those names before, and in a few minutes I, who know everything, added the man, fixing his serpent-like eyes upon the stockbroker with a kind of fiendish leer. I, he continued, remembered that Michael Martin was the man who had been the cashier in the bank of Tomlinson and Company, Lombard Street. But did he say, did he, began the stockbroker, gasping for breath, did he? He raved, he grew delirious, and in his wanderings he said enough to prove that he was not guilty of the breach of trust imputed to him. Oh, God, thy vengeance overtakes me then at last, cried Tomlinson, sinking pale and trembling upon a chair. He said much, very much, continued the man whose revelations had thus produced so strange an effect upon James Tomlinson. But do not alarm yourself. I am not one to peach, and the doctor himself is not likely to say anything that might lead to an awkward inquiry into the circumstances that brought the old gentleman into his house. Remember, the law now punishes with transportation those who resurrectionize and those who encourage resurrectionists. Then you will not betray me ejaculated Tomlinson, a ray of hope animating his countenance. "'Betray you?' echoed the man, with a contemptuous curl of his lip and a ferocious leer of his eyes, which gleamed from beneath their bushy brows like those of a hyena from the shade of an overhanging brake. "'Betray you? What good should I get by that? You know that a reward of three thousand pounds was offered to anyone who would deliver up this Michael Martin, and as a man of sense you must understand that it would not be very convenient for me to go forward and claim this reward. <laughs> At the same time, I might talk, or my friend might talk. No one could prevent that, and such like idle gossiping would lead to the detection of the old man. Now, you are the best judge whether or not it is worth while to put a seal upon our lips. We don't want to be hard upon you, but perhaps 
added the man, interrupting himself. You had better see the old gentleman first, and then you will know that I am telling you the truth. When can I see him? Where is he? demanded Tomlinson, almost bewildered by the sudden revelation which had been made to him concerning Michael Martin. Oh, yeah. You had better put off your visit till dusk, was the reply, because I should like to go with you, and a surgeon would not be very well pleased if I called upon him in the daytime. Let it be at dusk, then, said Tomlinson. Name your hour. I have an engagement between nine and ten o'clock to-night, returned the stockbroker. Yes, so have I, said the visitor. What should you say to seven o'clock? It is as dark then as it is at ten or eleven. Seven will suit me well, answered Tomlinson. Where shall I meet you? At Bethnal Green New Church, the church that stands in the Cambridge Road and faces the Bethnal Green Road, explained the body-snatcher. You can be walking up and down now a few minutes before seven. I shall not keep you waiting. I will be punctual, said Tomlinson. But once more you will not betray me. Ridiculous, was the contemptuous reply. And the surgeon, he will not be tempted by the rewards to— Do you think he would walk straight into Newgate and say, I am come to be transported for encouraging and employing resurrection men? You need not alarm yourself. Me and my comrade will settle the matter amicably with you. The body-snatcher then took his departure. Tomlinson threw himself back in his chair, pressed both his hands against his heated forehead, and exclaimed in a tone of despair, "'I have fervently prayed that I might meet my poor old clerk again, and heaven has granted my request, but merely to punish me for my crimes.'" End of section 44